This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On December 26, 2004, a holiday known as Boxing Day, tourism was at an all-time high on the Indonesian island of Sumatra. Visitors from all over the globe were enjoying the festive season on the white sand beaches of the calm, tropical paradise. But a hundred miles off the coast, an unpredictable shift in the earth was about to wreak havoc on the region. A few minutes before 8 a.m., two continent-sized plates of rock abruptly slammed into each other, causing a massive rumbling earthquake. For a few seconds, the calm waters of the Indian Ocean hid the massive movement occurring over 30 miles below the ocean floor, until the seabed abruptly rose nearly 10 feet. Up above on the water's surface, the ocean suddenly bulged upward. It was as though the entire sea had risen up to form a single wave. A tsunami was rolling across the ocean at almost 300 miles an hour, and it was heading right for the crowded beaches on Sumatra. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. This is our first of two episodes on the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, which struck Indonesia after a deep-sea earthquake. The wave killed nearly 230,000 people and injured and displaced hundreds of thousands more throughout Indonesia, Thailand, and a dozen other South Asian countries, making it one of the deadliest natural disasters in modern history. 
This week, we'll delve into the origins of the earthquake and resulting tsunami, as well as the overdevelopment of the islands and lack of early warning systems that left the region vulnerable to disaster. Next week, we'll be covering the perilous journeys of survivors and the heroic attempts to save people in the aftermath. We'll also see how the disaster inspired changes to Indonesia's warning systems and emergency response. The island nation of Indonesia is spread out along the boundary between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. The more than 17,000 islands and atolls that make up the country give it the distinguished title of largest archipelago in the world. However, this vast stretch of the planet is a prime spot for natural disasters. Indonesia forms the southwestern edge of the Ring of Fire, a cluster of volcanoes that borders the Pacific Ocean. Of the 452 volcanoes along the ring, Indonesia alone has 141 of them. As a result, Indonesia is home to almost constant volcanic activity. Often these are simple puffs of smoke or discharges of rock and gas. But occasionally, a huge eruption can change the landscape of the islands. For example, on February 10, 1990, Mount Kelud erupted. The volcano spewed a column of volcanic rock and ash called tephra over a mile into the atmosphere over eastern Indonesia. This strong eruption was categorized as a four on the volcanic explosivity index. The most cataclysmic volcanic eruptions reach a magnitude of eight. After Mount Kelud's month-long eruption, lava and ash deposits piled as high as 75 feet in some places, blocking roads and burying vegetation. This was just one of Mount Kelud's more than 30 catastrophic eruptions in the past millennium. And Kelud is just one of the many volcanoes within Indonesia's borders. Yet volcanic destruction isn't the primary worry in Indonesia. Earthquakes pose a much higher threat. On average, Indonesia experiences up to 6,000 earthquakes per year, a vast majority of which are magnitude 5 or lower on the Richter scale. The Richter scale is a numerical chart from 1 to 10 that expresses the magnitude of an earthquake based on seismograph oscillations. Each number of the scale represents an exponential increase in severity and damage. This means that a difference of just one order of magnitude can mean the difference between a gentle shake, light damage, or widespread destruction. The reason why Indonesia has so many quakes is because it's at the meeting point for multiple tectonic plates. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Earth's outer shell is divided into several huge plates of rock. These plates are like interlocking rafts that float over the mantle, the liquidy inner layer between Earth's solid iron core and the rocky surface. Since the massive plates are always moving, they occasionally rub, bump, or slam into one another. When this happens, the two plates either grind against each other, or one plate gets jammed beneath the other. 
As the stuck plate continues to descend into the mantle, the motion causes a slow distortion of the overriding plate. While this doesn't sound like a big problem, these plates are the size of entire continents, so the amount of energy released is incredible. The overriding plate bends upward, producing a bulge in the Earth the size of a major city. The result is an accumulation of energy, like a compressed spring. And this trapped energy can build up for decades, or even centuries, before it's finally released. All of this happens below the surface, gradually and randomly, making it difficult to determine just when an underwater earthquake, volcanic eruption, or underwater landslide will occur. In December 2004, the tectonic plate beneath the Indian Ocean began sliding under the smaller Burma plate, causing one of these bulges to form beneath the water. And because the bulge was underwater, it had the potential to create a tsunami. A tsunami is a series of waves caused by the displacement of a large volume of water, generally in an ocean or a large lake. The waves can come as far as one hour apart from each other and look very different from so-called normal wind-driven waves. Most waves roll over the water in a never-ending cycle, where the low point of one wave, called the trough, is sandwiched between the frothy peak, or crest, of the next wave. But tsunami waves often have neither a trough or a crest. In fact, they often have no shape at all. Tsunamis simply look like an unstoppable wall of water gliding across the ocean. Because they resemble a sudden rise in sea level, tsunamis have often been incorrectly described as tidal waves. But tsunamis are unrelated to tidal activity at all. Tides are caused by gravitational forces of the sun or moon, and very rarely form actual waves. The word tsunami comes from a Japanese word that translates to harbor wave. It is a remarkably efficient translation for the catastrophic damage the waves can cause, since there is almost nothing except a tsunami that can destroy the harbor of a major city in a matter of minutes. However, tsunamis and ocean waves have one important commonality. They transmit energy through water. They simply do so in opposite ways. Wind-driven waves are created by the friction between wind and surface water. To form large waves, the wind needs miles and miles of open water to blow across to increase the energy of the wave. Tsunamis are formed by the movement of immense volumes of water at once, meaning the energy in the wave is present almost immediately. As tsunamis roar over the wide oceans, their energy dissipates. But if the tsunamis approach a shoreline, they suddenly pile up and become taller channeling their destructive energy onto the land. In the open ocean, a tsunami may be less than a foot in height. This means that occasionally tsunamis might be unnoticeable to sailors aboard ships, though they are catastrophic once they reach land. When the ocean is deep, tsunamis can travel unnoticed on the surface at speeds of nearly 500 miles per hour, almost the speed of a fighter jet. A tsunami can easily cross an entire ocean in less than a day. 
But for a tsunami to reach the size and speed of the one that devastated Indonesia and its surroundings in 2004, a massive volcanic eruption, underwater landslide, or earthquake would have to occur first. For all of Indonesia's experience with natural disasters, no one expected a record-breaking quake in 2004 or the record-breaking tsunami that followed it. We'll hear about the massive earthquake that spawned the catastrophic tsunami right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. By late December 2004, Indonesia had seen nearly 5.5 million foreign tourists visit the islands that year. The majority of the visitors spent almost 10 days in the country, certainly long enough to feel one of the gentle rumbles that signaled one of Indonesia's 6,000 annual earthquakes. Warm, vibrant waters and soft, sandy beaches made the island nation a popular destination for tourists from around the world. And Indonesia needed tourism to fuel its economy. Throughout the 1990s, investment in tourism infrastructure like hotels and tour companies increased the economic reliance on foreign currency exchange. Tourism nearly doubled in the first half of the decade, reaching 5 million annual visitors by 1996. The continuous improvement and building of beachfront properties meant more revenue for the country as a whole and more jobs for its citizens. Unfortunately, the singular focus on tourism left the nation vulnerable. The economic benefits of tourism didn't reach every citizen, or even most of them. It was only this past year that Indonesia was taken off the developing countries list. While the infrastructure around tourism built up magnificent buildings, roads, and beaches, the local infrastructure suffered. Local homes across the island were built of substandard materials, crammed together on lots and often without regulation or building codes. Many homes had no electricity or running water. In the event of a natural disaster, most Indonesians would be left vulnerable to the elements in crowded, haphazard communities. Very few homes and businesses would be able to withstand even a moderate earthquake. 
And to make matters worse, 60% of Indonesia's population lived along the coasts, where even a distant earthquake could decimate their homes if it triggered a tsunami. In an island nation with thousands of earthquakes a year, it was only a matter of time before disaster struck. Indonesia had invested so much in tourism development that there was little budget for warning systems or emergency response. And it wasn't like the technology didn't exist. It just didn't appear to be a priority in Indonesia before 2004. In Japan, where earthquakes and tsunamis are also common, there has been consistent investment in quake-proofing homes and other structures, as well as establishing early warning systems. Since Japan has historically suffered the most tsunamis, it's only natural that they would be the first country to develop a tsunami warning system. Japan's development of tsunami science began in 1896 when a giant Sanriku tsunami with run-up heights up to 38 meters claimed 22,000 lives. The first successful early warning system was not a complex system. If the ground shakes violently, evacuate. This was a practical approach because seismic waves travel anywhere from 20 to 40 times faster than tsunami waves. So the earthquake information could be used as a crude indicator of the approaching tsunami's strength. Japan's first instrumental warning system was established in September 1941 in Sendai, Japan, and was designed to quickly detect the earthquakes and warn people that a tsunami was imminent. With each subsequent generation, Japan also found new ways of improving their safety measures if an earthquake was to shake its towns and cities directly. By 1981, Japanese government standards mandated that buildings had to be able to resist an earthquake of magnitude 6 or higher. Mandates and building improvements would advance until the year 2000 and beyond, making Japan one of the most disaster-prepared countries in the world. Other nations along the Ring of Fire have been attempting to overcome these disastrous quakes and tsunamis with technology for almost a century. The current primary warning system to alert Pacific communities was developed in Hawaii. In the wake of the 1946 Aleutian Islands earthquake and tsunami that devastated Hilo, Hawaii, the U.S. government decided to establish an early warning system. In 1949, the Pacific Tsunami Warning System was created. The system uses seismic data as its starting point. When seismographs detect earthquakes around the Pacific Ocean, the system uses oceanographic data, like ocean depth and prevailing currents, to calculate possible threats. Tide gauges that measure sea level rise are checked in the area of the quake to establish if a tsunami has formed. The Pacific Warning Center then forecasts the path of the tsunami, issuing warnings to at-risk areas all around the Pacific Basin. Historically, over 80% of tsunamis occur in the Pacific Ocean, meaning that the Pacific Tsunami Warning System is in use 24 hours a day. It's also the regional warning center for the state of Hawaii. The other tsunami warning center is the National Tsunami Warning Center in Palmer, Alaska, serving all coastal regions of Canada and the United States, except Hawaii, the Caribbean Sea, and the Gulf of Mexico. 
However, neither of these centers monitored the Indian Ocean, and there was no funding or development of an early warning system in Indonesia in 2004. The Indian Ocean did not have the same seismic and oceanic events commonly seen in the Pacific. Destructive tsunamis were not a common result of earthquakes under the Indian Ocean, and with tourism driving the economy, there was little reason to invest in warning systems. Kerry C., the founding director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore, said, There was nothing in the Indian Ocean. Nothing whatsoever in terms of technology or people's awareness or infrastructure preparation. So when the world started to shake on the morning of December 26, 2004, no local or tourist in Indonesia was ready for what would come afterwards. The day after Christmas, known as Boxing Day in Indonesia, had dawned bright and clear. Tourists and locals alike were waking up and going about their morning routines, sipping coffees on hotel balconies and running errands to holiday markets and stores. It looked to be another perfect warm day in paradise. In Banda Aceh, one of the largest cities on the island of Sumatra, Seven-year-old Martunis only had soccer on his mind that morning. Martunis and his friends regularly met early for informal games. This holiday morning was no different. It would take something extreme to stop Martunis and his friends from enjoying their soccer match together on such a beautiful day. But at 7.58 a.m., a thousand-mile stretch of the tectonic Indian plate slid approximately 50 feet along the edge of the Burma plate. This movement was tiny on a global scale, but the two shards of rock opened a crack in the earth between them. The crack was the size of California and the largest fault line rupture ever recorded. This fissure in the Earth's crust opened 30 miles beneath the Indian Ocean, just off the westernmost islands of Indonesia. The crack released a staggering amount of energy in the form of an earthquake. The seismic reading at multiple Pacific warning centers indicated the quake was a 9.2 on the Richter scale and lasted for 10 minutes. It was the third strongest earthquake in recorded history, and it was powerful enough to lift up an entire section of the ocean. When the island started to shake, Martunis and his friends knew this quake was different from the others they were used to feeling. It was definitely extreme enough to stop their game. In fact, the massive earthquake was enough to send them scattering back to their homes. As they ran, the shaking continued. At the same time, just a short boat ride offshore, a fisherman named Haidir Mayadin was returning from Pulau Way, an island off Banda Aceh. He and other fishermen had spent the night on the tiny atoll and were anxious to get home. The boats suddenly began to sway, startling the fishermen. The water seemed to have risen spontaneously beneath their boats, causing them to rock. The fishermen couldn't have known 
that they had just felt the initial pulse of energy from the quake that was shaking the giant island just a few minutes away. This energy was equivalent to 23,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. Local fishermen closer to shore felt the sudden swell in the water too. Nazaruddin Musa was casting out his lines at one of his favorite fishing spots near the Kruangchut village when he felt the quake from his boat. He was close enough to feel the vibrations of the earth through the water. Nazaruddin let the surprising moment pass and then attempted to keep fishing the best he could. After all, earthquakes were nothing to worry about, he thought. But Nazaruddin also couldn't stop thinking about his family back home without him. They would be scared by such a long tremor, and their safety was far more important than anything else to him. Following his ominous gut feeling, Nazaruddin arrived at his home just a few minutes later, around 8.30 a.m. He was relieved to see that his family came out of the quake unharmed. At the same time, Martunis, the soccer player, was piling into a minivan with his parents and sister. He felt fortunate to have his family in one place as they gunned the engine to try to make it out of the city. They hoped to get on the roads as soon as possible before others did the same. But it was already too late. As soon as they got on the main road out of Banda Aceh, traffic halted them in their tracks. It was gridlock. Many other local families were trying to flee too. A quake of that size could easily produce more aftershocks or even a dreaded tsunami. They knew that something terrible could appear on the horizon at any minute. Coming up, the earthquake gives way to a history-making tsunami. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Around 8 a.m. on December 26, 2004, an earthquake rocked the archipelago of Indonesia. Meanwhile, roughly 1,000 miles away in Thailand, the tourists and locals of Khao Lak felt the first tremors at 8.30 a.m. The enticing white sandy beaches were lined with rental huts full of mostly Nordic tourists on their holidays. Most were unfazed by the shaking, which was significantly less than what was felt in Indonesia. Others were preparing to spend the day out on the water with their scuba gear, including Irishman Bill Malone and his girlfriend Elka. They'd driven up from Phuket to Kaulak for the pristine waters. Like many others that morning, they'd started their day as anyone would in paradise. Breakfast, a quick lather of sun lotion for protection, and a sense of excitement and adventure. Bill described the water as a clear turquoise, shimmering almost like glass in the early morning sun in front of their rented wooden home on stilts. Perfect conditions for an underwater excursion. 
For surfers, the waves along Kaulak were good to go that morning. Brian Ingle of Dublin described the waves as ideal, but his surf and excitement came to a halt as he heard the faint sounds of a helicopter flying above him. It was a low-flying army helicopter. Brian thought its presence was unusual and vaguely alarming after the rumble just a few minutes previously. But the shaking had stopped, so tourists and Thai locals alike carried on unfazed by the tremors for the next two hours. Petra Nemkova, a Czech supermodel, thought it was a beautiful time for a walk on the beach with her boyfriend, Simon Atley. While the earthquake hadn't scared Petra, the receding waters of the ocean ahead of them did startle her. It looked like the ocean was pulling back from the pristine white beach, revealing a wide stretch of the normally covered seafloor. Petra assumed the dramatically reduced water could be explained by the lunar events of the night before. There had been a full moon Christmas night, which seemed to Petra to be a logical explanation for the retreating water. The couple tried to shrug off the eerie sight, but they headed back toward their beachfront bungalow just in case. At the same moment, Tom and Arlette Staup were enjoying breakfast on the balcony of their Kowlak Hotel. Tom had lived along the beaches of California earlier in his life, and he knew something wasn't right about the ocean looking the way it did. His gaze was fixated on the water pulling away from the shore. The hotel waitstaff noticed too and started to point. Then Tom looked further out to sea and saw the wall of water building up on the horizon. Tom grabbed Arlette's hand. He looked her in the eyes, terrified at what was coming. Then he told her to run. As they rushed across the hotel balcony, Arlette saw a wall of water suddenly push through the offshore reef and towards the shore and their hotel. It was moving at nearly 50 miles per hour. The couple burst through the hotel and rushed uphill into the forest as fast as they could. The sound of turbulent waters crashing with the beach chairs, palm trees, and debris was deafening, Arlette says. All around them, tourists, hotel staff, and other locals scrambled for higher ground. The sound seemed like it was right behind them. From her beachside bungalow, Petra heard the screams first. There were blood-curdling shrieks of fear in the distance, filled with urgency and panic. People up the beach had their cameras out, pointed out to sea. Others were fleeing the beach, running for the forest behind them. Petra tried to remain calm, practicing breathing techniques she'd learned over five years of meditation and yoga. These practices were abruptly going to be put to good use in the coming hours. They might even save her life. Petra heard some of the fleeing people shouting the word tsunami. Even though she spoke five languages, Petra wasn't familiar with the word. As she tried to see what was causing such an uproar, Petra heard the sound of the wave. Petra described the sound like a freight train, something that seemed very out of place on the beautiful Thai beach. Then the water arrived. It was like the whole ocean lifted up in the blink of an eye.
Before Petra or Simon could react, a surge of water broke into their quaint little bungalow. It swallowed Simon in an instant and pulled him out of the wooden hut before Petra could even reach for his hand. As Simon disappeared into the nearly black waters swirling around them, Petra was suddenly fighting for her life as well. The debris-filled seawater sloshed her around and then suddenly sucked her out toward the ocean. Tom and Arlette, exhausted from their sprint to safety, looked back down toward the beach. What they saw shook them to their core. Hundreds of bodies were struggling in the waters below. Every bungalow was submerged by the 10-foot wave that was cutting through the beach like a hot knife through butter. Tom and Arlette could only watch from the forest as Cowlack filled with the brown, bubbling slew of water. They wondered how far the destruction would reach before it was all over. Little did they know, the disaster was only the beginning. The tsunami still had two more waves rolling towards the shoreline. Before it receded, almost a quarter of a million people would be dead. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next week with the exciting conclusion to our story on the 2004 Boxing Day Tsunami. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Travis Gunn, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard.